gospel reading today is from John chapter 3, 1 to 15. It's also the sermon text. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to get together to gather as, a, as your church here in this part of St. Louis to worship you, to hear your word read publicly and proclaimed. And Lord, we ask all of us come to you with hungry hearts. Lord, that you would shape us, that you would draw us to you, that you would awaken the tired hearts, the weary hearts, and that you would renew and revive our hearts to the life, to knowing the life that you have given us, the life, Jesus, that you were lifted up to die for. Lord, today use this time to bring our minds closer to you and our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. On December 9th of 2004, there was an Associated Press story that broke with this headline. Famous atheist now believes in God. It's a pretty good headline, huh? The story went on to say, a British philosophy professor who has been a leading champion of atheism for more than half a century has changed his mind. He now believes in God, more or less based on scientific evidence. The man that this story was about is a guy named, you might have heard of him, is a guy named Antony Flew. Anthony Flew was a well-known professor, philosopher, 
and author of over 30 professional philosophical works that were mainly used to promote the cause of atheism or the argument of atheism. In fact, one of his, one of his writings was one of the most published philosophical writings used in, in a preface um, that was written back in 1950 and was presented actually at the Socratic Club, which C.S. Lewis was a part of at Oxford. So Flew, as you can imagine, also took part in numerous debates with Christian scholars over probably the past 20, 30 years. I've seen some of those debates, um, read about them, heard about him a long time ago, and, and recently uh, read a book by him called There Is a God. Uh, interesting book. But throughout his studies and research, Flew held to the principle that he attributed to Socrates, which is follow the argument wherever it leads. Sometimes he'll say follow the evidence wherever it leads. And this is what he was, what he was, uh, it was a guiding principle of his work, to follow the argument wherever it leads. Throughout his journey of thought and research, following the evidence, Flew came to finally say this. He said, we have all the evidence for God we need in our immediate experience. And that only a deliberate refusal to look, quote, look, is responsible for atheism of any variety. What he's saying is the, the evidence for a creator is there. And atheism just refuses to look. It's, it's, it's amazing that this conversion happened. Over, and he calls it a conversion. Um, with, with this man who was so rooted in atheism. Now, I bring this out because today's passage tells of a story of a man who's also followed the evidence to where it leads. And today, his evidence, as we see, led him to Jesus. So let's meet this man. Chapter 3, verses one, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So it introduces this man, Nicodemus. Who was he? What did he believe? Well, it says right off the bat, he's a Pharisee. He's a Jewish leader. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He knew the, the scriptures inside and out. He was an expert in the law, expert in the scriptures. And he was also a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was most likely a, a uh, member of the Sanhedrin. If you're familiar with that term, the Sanhedrin, if you're not, the Sanhedrin was this ruling council of Pharisees and Sadducees, this Jewish ruling council, and, they, and they, they ruled in civil law and they ruled in ceremonial law. The Sanhedrin was responsible for bringing Jesus to trial for his, for his crucifixion. They also believed they, they had a very high position in society. They were very well respected. They were very powerful, these members of the Sanhedrin. And some of the other things that, that the Pharisees believed coming into this, so this man who was coming to Jesus, he believed he had a birthright, a birthright as children of Abraham. He and the other Jews were already part of the people of God and believed they had a privilege that welcomed them as children of God. You see a debate about this in John chapter 8 where Jesus is defending, or they're, they're trying to defend themselves as, as children of Abraham. We, Abraham is our father. And Jesus sets them straight. Also, he was struggling. 
it appears that he was struggling. You know, if you ever watch The, the Chosen, some people have uh, uh, love it, some people are, eh. I, I, I enjoy it uh, quite a bit. And um, I think their portrayal of Nicodemus is really well done. Really well done. Um, you see this man who's struggling. And I, I, I think that's, that's how I picture Nicodemus. Somebody who is in a high, powerful position and yet struggling when he sees Jesus and sees what he's doing, what he's teaching. So he's challenged by what Jesus is saying. So as we join Nicodemus and Jesus this morning, we're going to see their conversation move in this direction. We're going to see it move through, through three stages. We're going to see observations presented. Next, we're going to see an explanation, and finally, we're going to see a confrontation. This isn't a hostile confrontation, but it's a confrontation of faith that we're going to see. So, the observations. Verse 2 says, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, let me make a comment here, because uh, what, what we hear a lot is that Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of darkness to keep from, perhaps, to come in, in secrecy. To, to meet with Jesus. That's very possible. But it's also possible in John's way of writing, the way he is using darkness and light throughout his writing, that darkness has more of a role in this narrative than just a time of day. That when he uses darkness and light in chapter 1, remember he says that Jesus is the true light and the darkness cannot comprehend the light. The darkness cannot overcome the light. But there's another interesting way he uses nighttime, which is later in the, in the, uh, in the gospel. In chapter 13, you remember when they're, when they're having the meal, uh, the Jesus' last supper, and, and, they're, and Judas is about to betray him. And Jesus says this. He, says, he tells him to, to what you do, do quickly. And, and verse 30 of chapter 13 says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. John intentionally puts, and it was night. There's a sense of Nicodemus coming out of the night into the light of Christ. And when Judas is rebelling, he's in the presence of the light going out into the darkness. Just uh, 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 other ways that, that some have seen this. So it could have two different meanings. So uh, just to bring a little more light, so to speak, on that, on that narrative. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, which is a very respectful term, he's respecting Jesus. This older, powerful Jewish ruler is coming to this young, new teacher and calling him Rabbi. He's respecting him. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. It's a lot to notice here. Notice he says we. He's not saying, Rabbi, I notice that you're, you know, all these things you're doing that you obviously come from God. He says we. I think Nicodemus could very well be speaking for others on the Sanhedrin who were kind of feeling the same way. You get a hint of that in, in John chapter 9 where it says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others say, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There's a debate. It's very possible that Nicodemus was part of these who were saying, How can a man... How can a sinner do such signs? So we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus with all of this, and he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And by the way, you see, Nicodemus is set here in chapter 3. The only thing, when you think about this is going through sequentially, chronologically, the only thing that would have been happening was Jesus turning the water into wine, right? And that wasn't even public. So it's very possible that this happened, that, that this account is not chronological in, in the Gospel of John because Nicodemus was well aware of many signs that Jesus had performed. So no question is asked. He just makes a statement. Nicodemus says, Jesus, all of the evidence points to something greater in you. Everything I've seen of you, it all leads to you must be coming from God. So what is going on? But he doesn't ask him. He just makes this statement. But Nicodemus, notices is simply focused on the evidence, that which makes sense before him. He's looking at things practically. Jesus is doing something amazing, but he's trying to make sense of it. But Jesus sees something more in Nicodemus coming to him. Nicodemus doesn't have to ask him a question. Jesus sees something more, and you can see that in his answer in verse 3. He says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking with authority here. He's saying, truly, truly, this is truth, and I am saying this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. One commentator says that, that Jesus didn't, respond to the words of Nicodemus, but he responded to his thoughts. And that makes sense because the verse right before chapter 3, what does it say? Chapter 2, verse 25 says, Jesus knew what was in man. I think that's leading the reader to be prepared for what's coming next. That Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Nobody had to bear witness about what's in man's hearts. He knew. He's like he's saying, Nicodemus, I know what you're seeking. You're coming to me. You're kind of blown away by what I'm doing, but I know what's in your heart. I know what you're hungry for. I know what you're seeking. And although Jesus' response seems lofty and confusing, it's actually very practical. It's very sensible. He's saying no one can be a part of this world unless they're born of an earthly father. He's using father here. But Jesus is simply saying that no one can be a part of the heavenly world the kingdom of God, unless they're born of the heavenly father. He's being very practical. But once again, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? He is so down to earth. He is so taking this literally. To be born again, this is, it's, it's a mystery. It, it sounds absurd even to, to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus' response here is like, come on, how can somebody go through their, their mother's womb again? Come on. Besides, he's in the line of Abraham. Who needs to be born again? How can you improve upon being a Jew? And why would you want to? We have the privilege of being children of Abraham. Why do we have to be born again? Nicodemus, being sensible and practical, sees only what's in front of him. But this, this, this conversation that's happening, there's more going on here. One commentator, Raymond Brown, says that Nicodemus is on the level of the sensible. 
He's on the level of the practical right now. He's just going to want to find out about Jesus here. But he must be raised to the level of the spiritual. And that's what we see Jesus doing here, bringing him to the next level, bringing him to the level of the spiritual. Nicodemus' misunderstanding leads to further engagement. It's interesting that, that even with his his literal taking of this, of this phrase that Jesus is talking about, being born again, that Jesus isn't annoyed by it. That his misunderstanding causes Nicodemus to seek more, to search more. I was talking with Larry Hughes this week, and, and he brought up the Proverbs 25.2. We, we were talking um, about Sunday school, which, by the way, is going to be happening on October 9th. Um, but he was talking about... Proverbs 25, 2, which says, it's the glory of the Lord to conceal things. It's the glory of kings to search things out. And there's a sense where the Lord is concealing things in order that we may search them out. And think about it, what you do with your, with, with your children. Larry brought this up, and, and it's just true. You know, one thing we do every Christmas, we have the big gift, you know, and the big gift is not something you just have sitting there. First of all, it's wrapped up, and secondly, there's a scavenger hunt. they got to find it. And it just makes that, big, that gift so much greater when they find it. It's the joy of the search. It's the joy of seeking. And there's growth that's happening, happening here with Nicodemus as he's struggling through what Jesus is saying. He's seeking it out. He's seeking the truth, and Jesus is bringing him along. So Jesus isn't bothered. He engages Nicodemus with now an explanation. He heard his observation. Now Jesus is going to give an explanation. And Jesus says this in verse 5. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Twice here Jesus is pointing to the kingdom of God. First time he said you, won't, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now he says with, with, uh, unless one is born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This was Nicodemus' struggle. Nicodemus, uh, think about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus unnamed and said, how do I inherit eternal life? I kept all the laws. This was a question. This was a question that Jesus probably got a lot. Perhaps Nicodemus was all too aware of his sinful heart and feeling that who he really was wasn't enough. It might have looked like it on the outside, but maybe he was aware and maybe he saw something in Jesus that he could never have without the Lord. And Jesus gets a little bit cryptic here. He, ta he talks about being born of the water and the spirit. Some talk about this being uh, baptism in the spirit. I, I, I don't think so. After, I just don't think. I, it, there's, there's, there's too much debate about that. And why Jesus would be talking to a Jewish leader about Christian baptism doesn't make sense. Um, there could be water in the cleansing, but where it most likely comes from is what the prophets said. Listen to Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. 
See, the water and the spirit, the renewal, the rebirth, the life is coming from a cleansing of the water and the spirit. I will pour water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and they shall spring up among the grass with new life. Like willows by flowing streams, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will say, we'll call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. So there's water, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The life is in the spirit. Becca read Ezekiel 37, which follows. That life is in the spirit. It's in the wind. It's in the spirit. God breathed life into Adam. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters upon creation. And then Jesus continues here in verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's separating these two. He's saying, look, you were born of flesh. You know that. But what's born of the spirit, but, but, but I'm sorry, but what, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel what I said to you, that you must be born again. He's saying, Nicodemus, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I'm speaking to you truth. Then he says this, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does that mean? So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. By the way, something very interesting, if you look at the Greek or the Hebrew, the same word for wind, is the, the word for wind and spirit are the same word. In Greek, it's, it's pneuma, and in, in uh, Hebrew, it's ruah. I probably didn't say that very well, but, but you get the idea. They're the same word. There's a little play on words here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You can't see the wind. But what you see with the wind is you see the effects of the wind. You see when the leaves are fluttering out there. You could look out the window right now and see leaves fluttering. You can't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. On the most extreme level, you go through a, a, an area such as Puerto Rico that's just been devastated by wind and rain. You go through a tornado-stricken area. The devastation, you can't see that wind, but you see the effects. We can't explain it. He's saying you just don't know. You, you know, Although we can't see the wind, there is no doubt because we see the effects of its existence. What he's saying here is we can't see the Spirit, but we see the effects of the Spirit. The spiritual birth is not something that you're going to see or feel or touch, but it's something that's going to produce something in you that will be evident. The new birth brings evidence of it through the lives that are lived. No, we don't see the Spirit, but we see the effects is what Jesus is saying. Just like Paul said in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead, you need new life breathed into you. And the only way that happens is through spiritual birth, through being born again. 
He's saying, Nicodemus, you're dead. Yes, you're a seed of Abraham, but you're dead. And you need new birth. And so he brings these explanations to him. And next thing Jesus does is it comes down to a confrontation of faith. Because Nicodemus says, how can these things be? In verse 9. Another way to translate that is, how can this happen? I think he's kind of playing right into Jesus' hand. Jesus is explaining this, and finally Nicodemus says, how? How does this happen? Jesus answered him, kind of rebuking him a little bit. Are you the teacher of Israel? Are you a member of the Sanhedrin? You know the scriptures there aren't anybody in this village. And yet you do not understand these things. Again, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. You notice Jesus is now using the plural, saying we? Who's with him? It's hard to say, but I think it probably leads to the fact that he's talking about the witness of the scriptures, the witness of the prophets, the ones he's bearing witness of, and also John the Baptist who is there, who's talking. He's not using his disciples, but Jesus, along with the scriptures that he has been arguing with, that he has been presenting to Nicodemus as the living word of God, he's saying, and you, by the way, is plural. He's saying, but you all do not receive our testimony. Jesus knows that he's probably coming from a cohort of others who are wanting to know more about Jesus. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I'm talking to you about wind and birth and kingdoms, how are you going to believe when I start talking about heavenly things? And then Jesus brings out the scriptures, references to the scriptures that Nicodemus should know very, very well. Verse 13, 14, and 15. Well, verse 13 and 14. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's bringing a little bit of Daniel into this, which should set Nicodemus back. You mean you're the Son of Man? You're the one that Daniel prophesied about? Then he goes back to Numbers 21. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You remember that story? You know that story when, when they were in the wilderness and they were sinning against God, they were rebelling against God, and God brought judgment upon them through poisonous serpents. It's kind of a harsh, harsh scene. But God provided a way of deliverance as well. And he had Moses create a, a, a bronze serpent on a pole. And he lifted that pole up, and whoever was bitten by the poisonous serpents, if they wanted to be healed, they looked upon the serpent. It was a way for them to show obedience and trust in faith in the Heavenly Father. To say, I trust you. Looking by faith for the healing. And now, 
he's saying, just as Moses did that in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus talks about being lifted up. And this is another dual meaning word. This word lifted up is referred to in, in, in John 8.28 and twice in John chapter 12. And all three times it refers to crucifixion, being lifted up on the cross. And you'll see the crowd will even respond. Why is he saying he's going to be, he's going to be crucified? Why is he saying he's going to be put to death? Because they understood what it meant to be lifted up. But the other meaning of this word means to be exalted. And Jesus is saying, so must the Son of Man be lifted up to be crucified, but also lifted up to be glorified. And 15 is it, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have the kingdom of God right at their disposal. Entrance into the kingdom of God. And notice he says, whoever he doesn't say, if you're Jewish, if you're a descendant of Abraham, he says, whosoever. That's intentional. It's not just for you, Nicodemus. It is for you. But it's for all who would believe on him who may have eternal life. This confrontation now, he puts in front of Nicodemus, he says, okay, this is probably more than what you came for, but what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this now that you know this, Nicodemus? You may be a Jew, a Pharisee, or privileged birthright, but Nicodemus, you've been bitten by the serpent as well. We're all cursed and destined for death. We've all been bitten by the serpent. The only way to see eternal life, the only way to enter the kingdom of, God, kingdom of God is by looking upon the Son of Man, Nicodemus, and you're sitting right across from him now. The only way to enter the kingdom of God is to believe in the Son of Man, to understand that you have no privilege to enter the kingdom of God based on who you are. The only privilege to get into the kingdom of God comes through the Son of Man, comes through Jesus Christ, who paid the price, who has the key to the kingdom, and will let all in who come to him. Being born again, Nicodemus, means taking on a new identity. It means not resting on your identity as a child of Abraham, as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin. It means a new identity, taking on a completely new identity and sharing it with all who come to Christ. Taking on a new identity means you're leaving your tribe, Nicodemus. You're leaving your privilege, you're leaving your comfort, but you're not leaving it alone. You're taking on now an inheritance that's imperishable. An inheritance that's undefiled and unfading, waiting for you. A living hope. So what happened to Nicodemus, do you think? Well, we don't know. It kind of leaves us in a mystery as to how Nicodemus left that conversation and what happened after that. Although we do see Nicodemus two more times in the book of John. We see him in chapter 7, verse 50, as he defends Jesus. 
He says, hold on, let's not act too quickly here. And then in 1939, uh, in in chapter 19, verse 39, after Jesus is crucified, we see that Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, provide spices and provide the embalming or, or maybe even take part in the embalming of Jesus' body. What kind of man was Nicodemus then? What kind of change had come over him where he was willing now to touch a dead body and to embalm it? and to share in the work of others who were not as high up as he was. So brothers and sisters, I think this is a good time, I think as as Sam talked about, to consider our life in Christ, to consider your birth. Are you born again? Has anyone ever asked you that? Have you grown up in the church and just considered that, that what you've been doing has been, has been good enough? Have you never been in church and have no idea about this? Are you born again? Have you looked to Jesus and recognized your insufficiency and looked to him and say, Jesus, I need the life of your spirit in me that I might place my identity and all my hope and everything that I have in your care? If you haven't done that, would you bow your heads? Let's just pray today as, as, as we go. And I'd like to pray for you all and ask that the Lord would, would meet you where you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Jesus, for your words. That even though Nicodemus was, seemed so off course in so many ways, yet you loved him and you, you were patient with him. I thank you for how patient you are with us. I thank you for how you care for us in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our running away. And Lord, you invite us out of the darkness to come to converse with you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us, that you would convict us if we are not born again, if we have not given our our whole selves to you and placed our faith in you. Help us to believe, and Jesus, help our unbelief. It's in your name we pray. Amen.